0: Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. On Memorial Day, we take time to remember those men and women who served in the U.S. military and lost their lives in service to this country. So I want to just express my gratitude for those who made the ultimate sacrifice. This weekend also marks the beginning of summer vacation for teachers and students in America, and this podcast episode will be a conversation with a fellow teacher and former uh, colleague of mine, Forrest Radarian. Forrest has taught science for the past 10 years in South Phoenix. He has a passion for environmental science and biology. He's also an avid outdoorsman and is currently on a sabbatical of sorts to spend time out in nature. I caught him for this interview last week just after he completed the Arizona Trail, a hike uh, from Southern Arizona to Northern Arizona. Forrest brings a scientific approach to the craft of teaching. He is very well versed in education research and has developed a a teaching style rooted in this research. The impetus for this conversation was the news that came last week that the SAT test will start to include what they call an adversity score, which is an attempt to indicate to colleges how much relative privilege or disadvantage an applicant has. So we talk about this and about the college admission process in general uh, in the second half of the podcast. In the first half we discuss why Forrest went to teaching, very inspirational story and also how research might better inform our practices in education. Uh, the conversation lasts around 45 minutes. Just a side note first for our regular listeners Summertime will also bring some different themes and maybe a different rhythm to when episodes get released. This because I've got a lot more time on my hands over the summer, but Robert Rob relocates to Flagstaff to escape the heat. We'll still try to get together for some news related episodes, but I'm open to get some different guests on the podcast and to discuss different topics. If you want to contact me with a suggestion for a podcast topic or guest, You can email me at robpodcast at gmail.com or message me on Twitter at billyrob33. You can subscribe to the Political Notebook podcast on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, or any other podcasting app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation with science teacher Mr. Forrest Rodarian. Forrest Rodarian. Thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Billy. First question I want to ask you is, you're a science teacher. Um, you're interested in environmental science. You have a degree in science. I've talked to you a lot. You're very intellectual, uh, very skilled in, in, in science. I imagine you could be doing a lot of other things with your science degree uh, that could be making you a lot more money. Um, Maybe more uh, more influence, uh, stuff like that. Uh, why did you choose to go into teaching? So my uh,
1: the summer between my junior and senior year of college, I had um, an REU research experience for undergraduates. An so REU, the, yeah, they're th- from the National Science Foundation. They're like a, a grant scholarship, and uh, I worked at the University of Pittsburgh at their Pimate Tuning Lab of Ecology and. Uh, I got to meet some very intelligent uh, and very hardworking and creative individuals who were doing experiments looking at pesticide impacts on orthopods and other aquatic organisms. Notably, the lab was doing a lot of work on Roundup and its parent company, Mozanto, uh, I Monsanto, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And uh, I had an opportunity to uh help out uh, a postdoc who was doing research on amphipods and their growth characteristics in response to uh, potassium chloride levels in the water. Anyways, he was just using these little Dixie cups, which are just like things you could buy from the local, like I don't know, Target, Walmart, wherever. And then he had amphipods, and then some chlorine I'm sorry, some potassium chloride. and uh, it was a really cool experiment. And I thought, my God, this is so simple, the genius behind it being the actual like thought process and the design of it to see the outcomes. And I thought, man, I feel like something like this could be easily replicated in a lower level of education. I had also had a fantastic teacher in high school who helped me get a scholarship um, by competing at the state level science fair. I won it um, for my research on alligators and their chemo receptors and uh, mechanoreceptors. And that was massive for me being able to go to college. So I guess I envisioned, so, so oh no, you, go ahead.
0: So so you, with, that, with this experience with that, I didn't understand any of it. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) yeah but you're saying that experience you you saw like did you have an opportunity to go advance in that kind of work and,
1: and yeah definitely i would say uh essentially the reu i was in was kind of a jumping off point to then apply for the phd or master's program and kind of continue graduate school and and kind of continue work in the lab um i mean there were Way people were working probably way harder than I was uh and in many respects, my passion I realized in that moment was that I loved working on science, but I also envisioned myself doing these kind of experiments with people in education and I thought back to my science teacher and I thought, man, wouldn't that be cool to provide a similar set of experiences and Financial opportunities for the college level for students in high school,
0: and you have been teaching in charter schools your your entire career. That's correct. Uh, you've worked in inner city charter schools uh, in Phoenix for your entire teaching career. Yeah, Title
1: One schools the whole time.
0: Why did you did you specifically uh, go to that educational experience rather than? let's say, a, a a district school or, let's say, you know, more, you know, higher income or s- suburban No, experience? a good question. Experience.
1: So once I determined at that point that I was interested in working with people and with science and education suddenly became a very real aspect, uh, I applied for Teach for America. Um, my wife who at the time was just my girlfriend, uh, was an education major at our university. And we met a TFA recruiter who encouraged me to apply to their program. And it seemed something up my alley. I thought, man, I got this amazing scholarship to go to a university. I want to provide, like, maybe students who also need uh, that financial opportunity the same uh, experience so overall. It's so, so, Teach for
0: America was your entryway.
1: Teach, yeah, Teach for America one of was that
0: stayed, and lot of, lot of, <laughs> a, a lot of a lot of, of them leave. Them
1: things, I, I've got a lot of mixed feelings but on you TFA. Got <laughs> no, I I <laughs> did. I initially was going to be one of those TFAers who just left, probably after like two or three years. But when I was in education, I saw how many people were leaving, and I just thought. This is a long-term commitment. This is not something that you go and fix in in, in a singular year or double year experience. Uh, I honestly, teaching, did not begin to even click. I thought it was clicking prior uh, prior to this point, but it was year three when I was like, oh man. But it was year five when I was like, oh man. Everything I was doing was when I, when still
0: I, needed to be improved. When I first started teaching, my principal said, it's, "It takes you five years." To get your to get one subject down, uh, absolutely. And I didn't believe it. I thought I was, you know, all star after a second year. <laughs> but you do kind of notice things. Uh, it gives me, I think, appreciation for for people who stay in to stay in the field. And 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 uh, you know, no no disrespect to people that leave because I think so many frustrations with uh, with the job. I think if if teachers are honest, they're they're thinking about leaving on a regular basis (laughs) I would agree with that situation. So I mean, what are some of the just real quick, some, some lights and, and shadows of, of your work? Oh man, the light,
1: the light for me, what gives me meaning every day is working with humanity. Uh, it is, this is the aspect that I wake up for every day, human connection, working with people, watching young adults, Grow, watching them think through how their actions are going to shape their own futures and the futures of those around them. Um, and there are so many highs and lows in that decision-making process. But that complexity—that is the beauty of humanity, to me.
0: Uh, yeah. So I guess that's my light. So right that's there. what. That's what keeps you in it. That's like. <laughs> that's like deep inspiration. I think that should be like. You know, a kickoff speech of, <laughs> and, a, and, uh, a, and it's, a pep talk throughout the real year. Man. We could use it. But what about some of the what about some of the challenges? Like I know, you know, we've talked a lot. Uh, yeah, you know. Um, Teachers' lounge, lunch, after school, by the various challenges. Uh, what do you think is some of the? Just personally, some of the. There, I mean, the main there are challenges. so many
1: education. You can pull so many things out of a out of a bag about it. One that just pops into my head immediately, and I think this is something that I've been grappling with is I feel that education is rife with ideological approaches, well intentioned, but not evidence-based or the evidence out there is mere corollary as opposed to really well-vetted causation. I think there's a lot of pseudoscience even in education. Uh, People tend to take very passionate stands on what they think will fix education, even if the
0: ground that they stand on does not have much substance to it. I haven't been around for for too long, you know, less than a decade, but I've already seen sort of a a shift in approaches. I think think what what happens is the new fad comes out. You got this new book or whatever that, that, that repackages almost something that people were talking about 15 years ago, but now you got all these new terms and new language to really talk about the same thing that you were doing before but then but then it's like all new training and, and kind of the old thing that you've already I would agree with old, that old kind of skills and things that you've already that you've already done. And
1: some of it doesn't even work to be honest, but it's so entrenched in the tradition that we are expected to do it again. We have whole PD sessions on some of these professional strategies, yeah.
0: Professional development is the the bane of a lot of teachers' existence. I think it should not some, be. If anyone's interested in, in in some of those stories, if you go on Reddit and go to the teacher Reddit, it's pretty. Oh depressing. no way! Is it's there pretty, is there it's really depressing? Uh, oh my god! Some gosh. of the stories that get shared, just uh, people share their despair on there about <laughs> uh, about professional <laughs> development, but. uh Dude, so I'm what definitely you, you talk? I, I think one of your what makes you different than a lot of teachers is how rooted you are in the in the research. Can you provide like just maybe an example of uh, one a, a gap there where where you where you see the research yourself, like you know about it, but you're seeing it done incorrectly or not done in how it's being implemented?
1: I mean, I think a really easy one to pick up on, and mm-hmm. I think it's becoming more well-known is the concept of multiple intelligences. Uh, How it's commonly used in the classroom and how it's been given to us in professional development as teachers is that you you can have your visual learner, your interpersonal learner, your auditory learner. Humans learn by a mix of various modalities. But how it's presented is that we should be appealing to and having students choose the modality that most appeals to them or that we should be teaching students in the modality of which they most enjoy or excel at. Actually, research shows that if you really want to get students to learn something, you should be using modalities that they are not as familiar with, that they are not as comfortable with. Uh, you are more challenged when you have to do things in a way that's different than what you are used to or desire, and it ends up making materials stick more. That's a very common one.
0: Yeah, I think that that is a trend of taking a generally true concept, you know, and you know the theory is there's different ways that people can express, you know, excellence in something. Like you'd say, professional athlete uh, like Stephen Curry has as a bodily kinesthetic genius that he's displaying. uh, You know, dancers, any athlete is is demonstrating that kind of intelligence, whereas someone else might have uh, demonstrate intelligence in, you know, math or science. So I think there's a general truth that we've all got a variety of skill sets that we maybe are really good at or enjoy or come to our full selves participating in. But you can't formulate that into the traditional classroom as like a, as, a, as a specific strategy in learning a specific concept. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I just think that's like a general we I think we take too much uh theories that are useful if we use them to what they might be useful for, but you can't formulate them into you know a, a cookie cutter sort of or sometimes strategy. they're
1: just completely wrong. And like I I feel like I sat through so many PDs where it's just literally like an article from utopia or something uh, its just someone's opinion piece about how to use these learning modalities and it's like we should be more entrenched with looking at what literature and accumulated literature suggests in terms of what's most effective in the classroom going back to something you said about fads i mean do you feel like sometimes there are fads that you see that have little backing
0: themselves well I think one of the biggest changes just with technology is how much memorization how much how much do you need kids to actually know in terms of a foundation of knowledge if you have guys got, got Google out there that you can look everything up. I think there's there's a train of thought that you don't need to learn all these things and memorize them and have them in your in your mind ready to use because you can just be creative thinking and then, and then connect them all together. I've definitely There's,
1: heard people argue that. And,
0: and I think in that that kind of wraps into the push to use all these technologies, uh, but I think the research, the, the cognitive research that I've looked at, not as, you know, in depth as a lot of other people, but it's very important to have a foundation of knowledge. And it's, it's important to have a, a mental, you know, if you're going to make connections between subjects, you need to have a, in your mind already a foundation of knowledge in those areas. You can't think creatively about history or government or science and make new connections if you don't already have all those foundational connections already in your mind. So I don't, I don't see, I don't see a decreased need for getting content knowledge at the foundational level, even at the high level, into our brains, you know, to have it there. I don't, what do you think? Uh, I'm going to take something you said right there
1: about the gap that you see between cognitive psychology and education. I agree with you on that. It seems to be sometimes much of what is being done as teachers in the classroom That's not always aligned with cognitive psychology, nor is cognitive psychology doing a good job of taking their research on learning and the mind and really making it something more applicable to the classroom. I'd love to see more experiments happening there. Uh, But yeah, like you said, there are a lot of assumptions that are being made.
0: Yeah. And we can make me talk more about what might improve the practices in the classroom, because I think both of us have shared just in our conversations, frustrations about how policy and administrative decisions aren't aligned with the experiences and concerns that we have. But, um, so if you wanna go into that now, we can. I was just gonna share an example of uh, one time that that we did um, visitations to other schools. I was able to visit uh, a classroom in the the North Valley of a, a psychology teacher who had been teaching forever, he, uh, you know, he had a master's in in cognitive psychology, and he had, he had he taught psychology and history, and he had kind of developed a whole a whole kind of strategy and teaching method based on his studies of cognitive psychology. And I was amazed in this classroom. He said he said kids sitting there reading almost the whole time, interested, and 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 so, I guess the point I'm trying to make with that example is. Here's a guy who's 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 passionate, you know, just like you. He's got foundational knowledge. He's using it. It's working in the classroom. Is that gonna stay with him? You know, the only the only way I was able to even meet him is because we did this trip one day to go visit another school and to see what they were doing. But what what structures do we have as a history teacher, as a science teacher, as an English teacher, as whatever? to be able to collaborate with other teachers in other schools doing the same thing. Are those structures in place? Should they be? Is there a master teacher in history that's leading other teachers in the state on how to do their craft better?
1: Man, I hope so. I, th- there definitely are in some,
0: I know definitely at schools where that's occurring. Uh, is definitely not, like, the primary method. Everyone complains about professional development. To me, the most valuable thing would be, one, just time on my own to develop my plans and my curriculum, but also to be able to collaborate with other people that are highly interested in the same thing. I think that would be one of the biggest things I would benefit from to improve as a teacher. I would
1: also enjoy doing something like that. Although... I am a little hesitant at the same time. It really also depends upon the quality of those you are collaborating with. I have collaborated with fellow educators before where it was just a hot mess (laughs) and it was not up to my part of what I would say like I would really want like professional development to be like and I was not getting out of it what I needed for my classroom. Likewise, I've also experienced collaboration with far wiser, far more masterful teachers than myself that left me in awe just asking questions the whole time, just drawing from their years of experience and wisdom to really just like shape my current actions as well.
0: So before we get into the SAT news of the day Uh, are there are there any other things that just are on your mind about what we just talked about how strategies professional development things that would be able to connect the research stuff into the classroom to make it impactful
1: i would love to see professional development be an opportunity for peer-reviewed journal articles to be present for researchers to be invited into schools to speak to staff about their research in education and about how applicable as well sometimes in education something will happen and everyone will jump on board but the variables in that particular study were so particular that it doesn't necessarily apply to everything i think the intellectual rigor is something that I would want to see
0: uh, improved. So let's transition and talk about the SAT news that's been reported on uh, originally in the Wall Street Journal, but it's been uh, made the rounds. People commenting. I will just give a quick uh, synthesis of of uh, what the College Board is doing, the proposed uh, change that they're making, and then I'll I'll get your reaction, and then we can talk about it. So the College Board is. Uh, what is the College Board? Well, how would you describe it?
1: Oh man, uh, I don't know if I'm the most uh, qualified person to they describe run, it.
0: They run. They, they They run the SAT. They run, they run the SAT. They run, they run advanced placement tests. Advanced placement tests. They play a major role in how people get into how people get into college. Oh, definitely. Uh, they're kind of you know people joke and, and talk about how they've got so much power in, uh, they in really the world do. of education and shaping these things. So they run the SAT. I think the issue that's, that's being addressed with this new change, they're adding a, an adversity score, and I'll explain that a little bit, but they're adding that to, they're gonna add that alongside the raw score. And I think the reason for the change is a recognition that the test has biases. In the fact that there's disparities in, there's racial disparities uh, on average on the scores. There's also uh, income level disparities. It's critiqued as having uh, inherent biases, cultural biases in the way the test questions are are written uh, that would that would show those. Then obviously, there's the socioeconomic and other uh, demographic. Challenges that create those differences. So, how do you, the College Board, how do they respond to those? Here's what the adversity score does. They're gonna, they're gonna try to basically tabulate the person's um, environmental hardship, environmental in hardships in context. They're gonna take, they're gonna, they're gonna seek to get information that they already have access to about someone's neighborhood environment, which includes the, the, the crime rate, poverty rate value of the housing in in that neighborhood so also the family environment which is the family income whether they're a single parent and then also they're measuring your basically comparison to your own high school environment so do they have AP opportunities at your school and so and so you're going to get your raw score that's whatever you have on the on the SAT but next to that score they're going to use those those factors to create what they call an adversity score. And it's, it's from one to 100, the average is 50, and it basically says, are you more privileged or are you more uh, disadvantaged? And, and they're gonna basically make that, that, that adversity score accessible to the colleges that are making their decisions. I, I guess they can use them however they want. This is being phased in uh, over a, a couple year period. But the students will not know their score. The students won't know their adversity score. Only the colleges will. But it may play a factor in determining uh, college entrance. So um, what was your immediate reaction to hearing the news about this new score?
1: Yeah, I think I mentioned this to you. I feel wary, uh, a little bit apprehensive I feel like I need to learn more about it. It seems like an effort by the College Board to recognize that there are other factors that should be, in their eyes, valuable to an admissions uh, official at a university. Um, That could also reveal a lot about a student I think where I get wary about it is i I'm kind of thinking through this out loud mm-hmm. right now. All right. So you have a test and the test has known influences and variables. Um, I know that socioeconomic status is something that highly predicts SAT and ACT scores. Uh, I think mo- almost more than any other factor out there. Right. So it's college boards recognizing uh, that component. I don't know if that fixes education to say at the end of the process, we'll try to make a note of it. It seems like we should be looking at the antecedents. And, and I don't think that, and to be clear, I don't think College Board is saying ignore the antecedents, but it almost seems like... I don't know, I, I guess I'm just wary of it. Like, th- will this actually fix things? I kn- I reread that there were some counselors, or I'm sorry, admissions individuals who said they did take it into account for the schools who were doing a trial run.
0: Yeah, it sounds like, a, I think a lot of schools already try to get that information and, and use it in a certain way. Um, and I think what, what you just said, the criticism, as I've heard, are all across the board. Um, for people that would call themselves more more progressive are, are making the criticisms to, um, you shouldn't even use this test anyways. It's already, yeah, it's already, it's, it's already. It's, of, yeah, I mean, it's, I it's, kind so of why, So why are you that. trying to backload it on, on the other side to try to balance it out when it's the problem itself? Um, it's getting criticism um, for, for being sort of like, what, you don't think that, you don't think that low-income people can do well in this test? You're yeah, just no, giving up on as well. you know. You're just giving up on the on the um, you know the achievement gap and just going to manipulate the scores to try to equal that out. You're not even going to you know you're just going to. So I'm, I'm hearing that criticism, um, but and then from the more conservative side of it, who who don't even like using race as a factor for or or, or and this 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 score is not using race as a factor. It's actually um, probably responding to a, uh, a court decision that might rule that race is not allowed to be a factor. That's the Harvard, uh, the Harvard lawsuit. Um So, so without using race as a determining factor, um, kind of like a way to show what things that correlate with that. So there's the criticism from, from that, from, from that side as well, that, some people don't think you should use uh, adversity scores or race at all they that they should just do merit only and what you know the the purpose of the test is to predict who's going to be successful in college and if you're jimmying up the test it's not really giving you that so it's i think it's just uh
1: another so, another <laughs> I guess, like, I'm I'm thinking through this all, like, out loud right now. So I have, like, no firm position one way or the other. Um, I mean, I – so what's the – the point of the SAT is to provide some sort of normative baseline for applicants to universities so a university can more easily discern those who are – I guess like college
0: ready. That sounds like something from our school, but does it? Yeah. Does it? I've I've seen co- uh, conflicting opinions on this. There's I've, I've read articles and, and opinions that say the SAT does not predict. Oh yeah, college success. I actually. Yeah, but I've I would also agree with that. I've also read other people claiming that it is a predictor of college success, and it's one of the only objective, quote unquote objective. It's the only predictor that's very valuable. I what mean, I might,
1: I might say something in response like, well, if we know that the greatest predictor of um, college entrance exam, standardized testing, whatever scores is socioeconomic status, are we really just saying that socioeconomic status is therefore probably a good predictor of college success long term? So is the test just there as an intermediary? What, what's its role? And the, the other, and College Board, I think, would claim that its role is to just show, right, proficiency. Perhaps I'm incorrect on that. And but the,
0: but the other the other problem is, the your adversity score doesn't necessarily it's not personally constructed, in the sense that um, it's not taking your per it's not doing a in depth interview of your life yeah. and, and trying to say me personally. Billy Robb or Forrest Rodarian have this level of adversity. It's taking the average, it's taking your school and your, and the, and the neighborhood you live in and using that as, as a factor. And it's like, what are you in terms of the average of that? So I guess, you know, it's not taking necessarily my individual personal challenges. I agree with that. Honestly, like I get wary of any tool that essentially
1: places I bo- to, from what I've seen from the article, it looks like the three categories are literally called um, privileged, average, and hardship. And I just ugh, not, I think this is the wary portion of me just gets a little concerned about just using an algorithm to place humans into such categories and then boom, you're labeled that. And, I, and that's kind of what that may be true. You may be privileged. You may face hardship but I feel like that misses so much of the spectrum of humanity, and I don't know, I guess that's where part of me feels very uncomfortable.
0: And it just feels like they've already got, you know, they've got that set of numbers. They've already got the grades. That's, that's tabulated into a, a number that you can use for comparison. You can already, if you want to, look up sort of that information about the person and their school, I think colleges already already using that. You've got the SAT raw score or the ACT raw score. And now you're going to have another number to use for that sorting mechanism. So it's like, what is this whole thing? Like you said, is it, are we just having this kind of convoluted sorting mechanism? It kind of takes the transparency out of how you actually get in I mean maybe some people would argue it would make it a little bit more transparent. Uh, but the kids don't even know what their people. score is. Oh, okay. And yeah, I, I did not catch that part. Their, their adversity score. And, and that's another problem is that and to me it's like, well, the colleges maybe should be deciding like can, can these can these people perform at the school? And if they can and they and they can and, and they, they should find a, a mechanism to determine can you perform here? And those then those people should be the and then you've got the the people who applied that can perform at that level. Which one of those do you pick? I, mean, I guess that's up that's <laughs> up to them. But if you're below, if if yeah. you if you can't perform at that level, you shouldn't. I don't think you should be going to that school. Oh I no, I
1: that. absolutely agree. I have seen many instances. It's of, not good for anyone. It's not yeah, good for the no. Kid going to I the think well-intentioned getting kids to go to a particular university and then watching it. Not work out well at all for the kid. Um, I guess, like I'm seeing here, I'm like, okay, this is interesting, and in that this follows the Collins co- college admissions scandal that just broke, right? Right. Which right. I I don't know if it's was so much a secret as I was kind of like, oh my god, this is shocking, but at the same time, d- duh, like yeah. it, it makes complete sense to yeah. me that this is. It's just a
0: more extreme version of. It, what's what's kind of already going on. I mean, I think noticed. it was,
1: I kind of just presumed it was kind of already going on to some extent. I, it, I think it's always joked about movies and different things and it's almost like one of those, like, oh, this doesn't happen, wink, wink, but it, it kind of does. Um, so I do think it's interesting that this follows that. I just keep sitting here and I'm thinking, okay, I'm a college and, and I have no idea the the training that a college admissions uh, individual goes through in order to make their decisions, right? But they have thousands of applicants coming in, all right? So you're trying to discern. You look at their grades, and uh, you're like, oh, you know, should, can we trust these grades or not? Is this school rigor equal to this other school, which is this whole issue in and of itself in education? So you look at this supposedly baseline score, and everyone's going to take the same test, on these same subjects at the same time, in the same way and and we're going to just you know see where they perform, right. But then all of a sudden you start to get these, you know and you're like, okay, you know we'll let, we'll let student A in, they have a great score. You know, oh now I got student B and C, they're kind of tied and we got one more spot left and they're not, you, know, how do we distinguish it? I think this is what College board is trying to say. like, hey, I have you know student B uh, it's labeled hardship. Student C is labeled, uh, privilege, um, maybe you're like, man, if that kid had to work so hard to get this score, I guess let him in. I think my question is, is that really fixing, is that a real long-term systemic way of fixing the problems in education? It seems like a fix at the end as opposed to fixing the causes that got there. Yeah,
0: you talk about the antecedents and yes. you know, everyone talks about the achievement gap. And it seems like a perpetual problem that people are are trying to solve. What do you think a better target would be? What do you think a better approach would be to to try to to, to bring more equity Oof. into good question? Into education. <laughs> if it's not Oh, you uh, mean like wait. for admissions? Let's no, no, no. Oh, okay, the antecedents. The way you're talking about oh, what's man. Okay. what's what's creating these in the first place? Because it's I think getting to the to the very end with already sort of probably flawed entrance process and adding a new convoluted, Medium. non-transparent yeah, no. element to it. it's not going to help. So what might what might help? Uh, on the front. End. Address the antecedents mm-hmm. so that there doesn't need to be
1: or maybe there still needs to be, honestly. Who knows? I, I gotta think on that more score at the end. But anyways, there is not one approach. There are so many aspects that need to be dealt with firmly. Um, I see a lot of I see a lot of issues when it comes to standardized tests in terms of the variables that can impact them. Uh, I had a lot of time on my hike. I just went on to kind of think about that. I'll talk about that separately, but, but in terms of antecedents, so, uh, so many approaches we need to talk about, uh, if we know that the socioeconomic status of a person can influence their life outcomes, then we need to have some conversations about, how we try to narrow the widening gap, I guess, between uh, the lower middle class and the upper class, uh, high income levels. We need to talk about access to healthcare, food, good nutritious food, not Mm -hmm. just like processed crap. We need to talk about um, access to, or what are stress levels like, uh, for a developing child in the home, and how do cortisol levels impact brain development and emotional stability? Uh, there's so many different aspects that need to be addressed. I think that sometimes society, or at least American society right now, like to point to education and say that it's the great equalizer. But when I was working at that lab, I'm going to give a I'm going to give an example here, almost a, a metaphor of sorts. When I was working at the lab. We did a lot of experiments, taking a look at how malathion, Roundup, the glyphosate in it, et cetera, affected tadpoles in particular. And one day, tadpoles, tadpoles, yeah, okay. amphibians, uh, but tadpoles and frogs especially. One day, I was setting up my experiment. And I was filling up two large water containers out in the field, and these these are mesocosms they're like cattle tanks that simulate a pond and then we can run all kinds of we can really control the all the different aspects of them and I'm filling them up and I look over and I see we have a second pump and I was like, man, I'm going to fill this up even faster." so I attach a second hose and I start filling up the second water tank right and um, almost patting myself on my back. I'm like, oh, I'm so proud of myself. I'm going to speed this up. And uh, my professor comes running out. He goes, what are you doing? And I was like, whoa, what's wrong? And he goes, get that water out of there. Drain that now. He goes, man, these two pumps could come from slightly different well sources, and that could influence the outcomes of the experiment. And you better bet these corporations are going to ask for our water. You need to use the same pump for the same ones uh, in every trial. And then we went out, and we when we did the tadpoles, we would get them from the same breeding individuals. We would use the we would weigh individual masses of tadpoles, and then use the same size mass ones in each round of experiment, and raise them in the exact same conditions, and then we would put the chemical in. And the point of all of that was to eliminate right all the different variables that could be influencing whether a tadpole lives, survives, develops hmm. properly, etc. And when I see these standardized tests, it's kind of like we're sitting in a classroom and we're applying in my experiment would be applying the pesticide, but now we're applying the test and we try to keep it all the same, but we haven't controlled what the tadpoles have experienced. We've used water from different sources. There's so many variables impacting it. But for some reason we think that if we just catch everything on the test, if I go out to my mesocosms and apply the pesticide exactly the same in every single container, that it won't matter where the tapels came from or the water.
0: It's simply not true. Yeah. So it's almost like we're taking these different, you know, we're looking at these completely different environments and we're trying to do the sorting at the end with, the te- with trying the same test. We're realizing the same test isn't producing very,
1: it's like we're trying to results only control all the variables for one small aspect and think that it reveals yeah a lot of truth from there. Yeah. When in science as a controlled experiment that would never fly. And, of course, there will always be limitations to doing something like that in education. It would be so difficult to set up an experiment where every child's raised in exactly the same way, in the same home environment, in the same environmental conditions, yada, yada, yada. But I do think that when we talk about the antecedents coming into these tests, that's what we need to be talking about. Yeah. These tests are limited in that aspect. And I'm not sure an adversity right. score, although well-intentioned, and, and it's going to fix that.
0: And I think once you get a teacher in a classroom with 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 students that are um, coming from a similar environment that would show up in the score, but they all have personal experiences that are way different. You don't know exactly what's showing up that day. And, you know, the teacher, I think, I think we put so much on – the teacher in that classroom with the expectation that you have to be, you know, sort of everything on your shoulders of, of producing that's And that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure for someone that's not making very much money. And I think if we have uh, an understanding that all those, all those wraparound supports, structural supports, community, um, stability, and putting more pressure on correcting, improving the ultimate. I mean, we're talking ultimately about what causes poverty and the and the effects of of poverty. But it sounds like you're talking about value-added measurement a
1: little bit when you're talking about like uh, uh, talking about like teacher impact and measuring that mm-hmm. with different tests and things. I know we're kind of veering off topic a little bit it's here. A, um. Value-added measurements. I keep uh, I keep a file on Evernote of all these different things that I just I get super pumped about. But dude, I'm I'm gonna address what you just said directly here. So um, there's a study by Chetty, Friedman, and Rockoff. Uh, oh gosh, I forget what year it came out. But anyways, they found that differences in teacher quality account for only around seven percent of the achievement gap, uh, and that's a very important like number because. I mean that means that we can teachers really do
0: seven percent I means teachers do have an impact right so and the and, and the achievement gap is really just the differences those differences on test scores
1: all those so, variables impacting student like so, outcomes so so right? out of all
0: those out of all those differences and, teacher
1: quality and their study only accounts for about seven percent of it so you can influence how students perform however that suggests that there is a large. Number of variables, uh, poverty, systemic racism, environmental aspects, pollution even, that can impact students overall. I just think if we're using these tests as a way to measure, in some ways, teacher proficiency as a measure of value, uh, as a form of value-added measurement, I guess I question, like, why we're using them to also measure students. Student proficiency as a one-time thing. I also take a look at some of these questions on the test. And I'm like, man, why is this particular like math skill right, going right, to be? Right. I, I mean, I have that's a whole right. set that's of that's a
0: whole different podcast. Maybe. <laughs> oh my gosh! But, uh, how about how about we'll uh, finish with a couple different types of questions? Uh, what book would you most recommend? um Throw out some book recommendations, both for average listeners that aren't educators themselves, and then some for maybe an insider.
1: Dude, I got them right here. I actually keep a list of uh, books I've read that have really shaped my okay. my re- of like my thoughts in education. All right, so if I wanted to give a book out there for people who just wanted the current state of teaching, education, where we've been, and where we're at, along with some good. Uh, research in there, it would be the Teacher Wars: A History of America's Most Embattled Profession by uh, Dana Goldstein.
0: The Teacher Wars. The by Teacher Dana Wars. Goldstein. Okay. Yeah,
1: excellent book. It is a excellent just primer, looking at American history specifically, and how many of the current uh, reform, I guess, movements that are occurring have ironically are are kind of modern echoes of. Past, and uh, ed- ed- uh, occurrences. Uh, if I wanted to recommend a for someone way more research minded and willing to like sit down, because this person includes a lot of data and very specific studies and research um, in their particular book, it's the flat world and education and. This book is by, I'm looking at right now, oh yes, of course, Linda Darling-Hammond, who works at Stanford, and uh, she did incredible research taking a look at, oh my gosh, world education and American education and American education in context of world education, and how a lot of these different tests tests can be easily manipulated by the system,
0: so... Do you want to, as we finish up here, you're kind of, kind of on a outdoor adventure right now? Indeed, experience, uh, journey, vision quest, <laughs> um, kind of life do you, dream. Do you want to share how people can get in contact with you, or do you want to, you want to shout out? Are you keeping a blog or a social media that people can, can yeah, follow? definitely. You,
1: you can totally follow along uh, on my journeys. At theforestbiome.com. Forest spelled like my first name, F-O-R-R-E-S-T, biome.com. And I also have an Instagram account set up for that as well.
0: Biome is B-I-O-M-E. Correct. It's a throwback to my environmental science teaching. Forestbiome.com. You got it. Or find that same name on Instagram. Forest, appreciate you, man. We miss you. As a colleague, and uh, thanks for coming on and talking to us about education. Heck Heck yeah, man. Don't worry. I'll be back to talk more about it. Sounds good.